The audience, the actors, the design team, and the play itself are all parts that make up a production. But it's the director's artistic vision that brings it into focus and makes it all work. Hello, I'm Gordon Cox from Variety, and I'm joined today by five of the stage's best. There are a few Thomas Kale, Moises Kaufman, Bartlett Sher, Lee Silverman, and Kate Warsky. Welcome. Thank you. I thought I'd start off with a couple questions about how you as directors work. Do you come into the room with a complete concept, and how do you formulate that concept? I'll, I'll say, for mm. me, I have a complete vision, and then it all changes. Mm. So it's all storyboarded, it's all clear, and then once I'm in the rehearsal room with actors, everything shifts. How much of uh, your vision is determined by the collaboration with the actors and the designers? Yeah, I mean, I... I, I it depends on the sort of how complex and how expensive the show is going to be, uh, but usually there are certain key things you have to know in advance. So you try to know as many key things as you can, and you want to maximize the amount of agility you have to change. So you're sort of trying to balance whatever the things are you're going to be really deeply wed to against the things you can hopefully. So often I'll do a design which has enough um, plasticity in it that it can kind of be bent and shaped a bit as I go along, so I don't get caught with something. And then you have to be brave enough really late in the process to renounce something you really love. And that might be really expensive yeah. <laughs> if it doesn't work. So, yeah. you know, it's, a, it's an ongoing becoming. It becomes, it doesn't, it isn't, is. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's sort of the way it is. I mean, you have sort of your idea that you've been working with, I mean, particularly on a, new, on a new play, with the writer, and then that all changes when you add your design team into it and you go into pre-production, and then I think it changes again necessarily, and necessarily should change again in front of an audience when you start to feel the response. And I think that a huge part of our job, as Bart was saying, I think, is to maintain a kind of nimbleness to that and an openness to that. And also, I mean, this is kind of the trick, is also to say, this is where we're going um, with a kind of um, authority and clarity so that you can have a vision and at the same time um, integrate um, a collaborative process, both with designers and actors, and then ultimately, I think, with the audience. Um, to, to, uh, to arrive in, I think, the, the most ideal place, which is often, I think, so different from where you start. I, I think you know, it's important to, to have the space um, to not know the answers um, and to, to be able to live there for a little while. And then, depending on how long the, the pre-production process is, or you know, and having had experiences of having many years, uh, luckily, to try to figure things out, you know, there's certainly something that allows the evolution then to occur in a way where you're interpolating all this new information from other people that are sort of marching to Oz with you as you kind of start going down the road and then you meet that person, depending also if it's a straight play or if it's a musical, you know, and how many other you know, people you're trying to, you know, yeah. to help serve. I think that there was something that Peter Brook said once that I found really helpful, which is that he did all of his homework and he, you know, storyboarded or blocked or did whatever it was that you needed to do, did all the research and everything like that. And then he kind of went into the room with nothing but a hunch. And I love the idea that he came into the room with a hunch and then with the actors and the designers, he, his job was to kind of really explore that hunch and really flesh out that hunch. But this idea, what, what I like about the definition is that it allows for room to really do what we're all talking about, which is to really be in the room with the collaborators and really delve into the material. Yeah, and, and that's the positive side of it, because I was talking to Kate beforehand, I'm working on a project that's coming up in the fall, and uh, you know, had all the designs, everything had to be in very early, and yes, 
two days ago, I was going through all the music, and I think it could all be wrong. And so I'm completely powered by unbelievable anxiety and fear over the entire project, which I think people underestimate how much of that is there. When you know, and the only really good thing a director does is mask their anxiety, <laughs> and they sit on it really well. And they like you can never in a good director you can never tell how completely, unbelievably overwhelmed and terrified they are at any moment, <laughs> and they seem like completely cool, and that's the job. Yeah. So. And was that realization brought about by just sort of your thought process about it, or by? No, I, I always do this process when I'm working. It's an opera that I'm doing where I work through it with a friend of mine who takes, takes me through the music, and he knows his music very well, and I don't know music so well, so I want to learn it. And in going through it, the more he talked, the more I thought, oh my god, I'm completely screwed. <laughs> and, but by the second day of doing it, it was actually getting a little better. Okay. So, you know. So I'm just hoping that it's sort of more or less in place. I think it's a good approach, but you're always sitting on top of that thing where you're like, maybe not this time. Just a little. <laughs> <laughs> totally. But I also have had the experience where I feel like I've made a bunch of design decisions, and then the play really changes, and all of a sudden you have a set that you know, you know, is at the last scene took place on a boat, and now it's like in Africa, and you're like, what? Well, but. Yeah. I, but I have a boat. I built a boat. Like, what do we do with the boat? And then you're like, okay. You know, and I think that that's, you know, it can be really exciting because you say, well, this is the better choice. This is the bigger choice. Let's move forward in this way. And also, you're totally screwed, you know. In a well, I also way. think it, it, it varies dramatically when you're working on a new play that is still being developed as you were. True. Mm -hmm. And in those cases, what Bart said becomes incredibly important, which is that you have to build yourself a set that is malleable enough that can support the vision where it goes, as opposed to nail everything down in a way that you will corner yourself. Um, but yeah, it's, 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 I had never heard anybody say that, that you build a set to give yourself as many options as possible, but it's absolutely right. Mm -hmm. The more fluid it is, especially with new work. Yeah. With new work, it's a must, because the play is evolving. So it's, it's about m making a set and creating a design that is able to listen to the play as it evolves. And when you talk to set designers in, in pre-production, what, what do you tend to give to them, and then what do they come back with in terms of what the show looks like? Well, space, space to me is my most valuable sort of thing that I like to work with, is the nature of how space expands, contracts, changes, is metaphor, is not metaphor, and all that. So, and I tend to, it takes a long time to develop collaboration, so I worked with Michael Jurgen a lot, and so it, it, it usually needs a lot of time and you need a lot of opportunity to kind of uh, have a, sometimes he'll have a very clear point of view and I'll have a less clear point of view and then it, it'll be okay and other times you just have to march through it very precisely and very carefully and hope that the space captures all those things you want in a theater, because the theater space always has to be, unlike film space, it, it always has the capacity to be both very realistic and completely metaphoric and suggesting all kinds of other things. It has to be incredibly fluid in a, in a concrete, in a, in a singular place. Mm -hmm. And so there's all these, that's the fun of it. It's like figuring out all these ways in which it shifts and changes and looks from, and that's where all the work goes. Not even in things people think, that's why I think concept is not really what the issue is. The, the issue is fluidity and sometimes metaphor and sometimes change and sometimes space and sometimes big and small and all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And how do what designers bring to the process influence your work? How does, and your 
creation of the show as it moves along. Well, I think also be before yeah. we go to that question, I think one of the things that it's, that's very interesting is that for me, and I think this, you know, I would love to hear what you guys think, each process, the relationship with the designer shifts. Sometimes you come into a show and you're like, I have a very clear idea of what, you know, some of the mood of this is and the feeling of it is, and I see a wall, or I see a bookshelf, or I see... Did yeah. that happen with you recently on a production? Or? Well, like for example, in 33 Variations, we knew that so much of, of the play was about this woman delving into Beethoven's manuscripts. And it was it was inspired by my trip to Bonn, where I looked into Beethoven's manuscripts. So I knew that that th it was really, really that the whole play was going to take place in that liminal space where the three storylines in the different time periods could coexist. And I really did what Bart just said that I gave me the opportunity to have a lot of shells and really begin to play with them and see what they how they contributed to the telling of the story and to the and to the thematic exploration that we were doing. Variations on a dance should end with a dance. What an elegant idea, and so elegantly articulated by the master. Um, other times, you come, you read the play, and you go in and you say, I, I really don't, it's not coming, nothing is <laughs> happening. And then, and then the designer will say, well, what about this? Or, you know, it's, and then it becomes the designer's job to really kind of help you flesh out what you don't know you understand. I also think it varies upon, depending upon the personality of the designer because there are two designers that I work with and they have very different takes and when I'm collaborating with one they'll definitely have the concept and the idea and the shape of it and are less interested in the relationship with the actor like what the actor is doing or like, like little things that an actor might need he's like well we'll figure that out but he'll really work in a much stronger bold stroke and the other person is all about the detail and it seems like depending upon which designer I choose, it's a completely different process. So it's also taking into consideration what they bring as people. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, sorry. Oh, I'm sorry, you know, it's, it's interesting that, you know, and I'd love to kind of hear what you thought as someone who has created text and then has to also interpret it in that way, you know, because the, the, the back and forth and the push and the pull with the writer, which ultimately is the blueprint that we're all sort of trying to serve in some way, and, and I think the more time one spends around that, I, you know, again, being very subjective about it, if I, can, if I can try to hone in on that and spend enough time there before the design process is even, you know, months away or what have you, going in and, and trying to figure out what the, best, and what the best space to play this particular, you know, this moment is, sometimes will appear to me. But a lot of times, you know, as those things start to reveal themselves, you know, it ultimately for me, there's there's something that the writer said that I just find myself going back to and going back to, and and I think that's why I have, um, I haven't really found anything quite that is an experience like hearing a new scene for the first time or hearing a new song for the first time when you're around that, you know, that juice um, is is something that I feel so responsible and obligated to try to serve. Um, so, you know, being someone that you know, and all of you guys have done it in various times too. I'm a bad enough writer to understand and appreciate writing, and I've written enough terrible things to be like, oh, that was terrible. Like, I really admire you for doing this. Um, but you know, when you assemble text or when you're you know writing, I mean, how, where does who helps you with that dialogue? <laughs> That's a good question. I, I have by now a group of dramaturgs that work with me that are able to ask those kind of questions. Uh, you know, we all say that directing is the loneliest job. Um, but I think when you're writing and directing, it really becomes lonely because it's, it's, you know, you're dreaming up the entire thing. So it's really important. I also, because I, I have a theater company, I have really 
learn how to bring actors into dramaturgical conversations in a way that they become owners of the story. And that becomes incredibly helpful. Because one of my, my biggest complaints about how we do theater in America is that we underuse actors. We really, and I don't mean that just because so many actors are, are out of work so often, but even when we have them in the rehearsal room. One of the, the, the joys of working on 33 Variations was that I said, this is where the story is going. And then we would improvise, and I would go home, and I would you know, write, and I would bring it back. And, and then the, 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 cat, you know, the actor, if they've been working on the play for a while, they can say, oh, my characters at this moment, not, that doesn't feel right. And their wisdom, it's not just intellectual wisdom, it's something that, as actors, they have experienced in every cell of their bodies. And it become, they become kind of the best dramaturgs mm. that you can have. So, I don't know, I think that, that that's, that's how having a theater company really helped in that I, I tried to um, make everybody become a part dramaturg. Yeah. What do you think, in general, is the role of a director in shaping a new piece of work that you, I mean, you've all worked on new, new plays closely um, as they've developed over the years. What, how do you see your role in shaping it and what it turns out to be? In many ways, I think that the best thing that we can do when we're working with writers, I think, is to say, um, this is what this feels like, this is what this is, this is what I think you're trying to say. Is that what you want? Is that where you're going? Or this might be better, or this would perhaps be more theatrical if, you know, I think that in a certain way we, I think, I feel a tremendous responsibility to ask a lot of questions without being particularly prescriptive until it's time to be prescriptive and then you better be right and you better be smart and have all the right instincts and I think that that's in a way the the joy of of working with writers I mean I think that there is um, the nature of that collaboration is so close and so intense and ultimately you know you you want to I think serve the play in in all ways and it is um important to keep everyone game, writers, actors, designers. Um, I mean, I think that that is one of the biggest challenges of working on new plays is that sense of always keeping um, a room and a theater feeling um, like it's moving forward, I think, even, um, and particularly on new work, because it's harrowing. I mean, it's harrowing. I think, um, you know, well, like when we were working on well, it's like, you know, we gave Jane Howdyshell a new end of the play every single night all the way through previews. And, um, and you know, every, every day she'd go, this is it, right? Like, we're not going to change it anymore. And I'd say, I swear to you, I swear to you. And the next day it was like, um, so we have some new pages for you, you know? And it was just like, you know, and, um, and I think that being able to um, try and keep people together and moving forward in a positive way is key, really, for new work. I, I always tend to make a very big distinction between creative creators and interpreters, which is why I don't know how he, mm -hmm. he does it. He does both. <laughs> You know, the people who write are very different in their mechanism from what they do from, from the people who interpret it. So uh, I think it's helpful when I work with a new writer, I stay the interpreter. I don't, I, I, no matter where the text is going, I just try to figure out what's in front of me and how to get it to work. And a lot of that comes from working on a lot of classical texts, which you can't change, and which go down blind alleys and dark corners and things you don't understand. And just because you don't understand them, your first impulse shouldn't be, well, you know, if this would be here and that would be here and that would be here, then we could get there. That tends to make essentially what is the deep mystery behind all these plays get a little ironed out. And I like all the mystery stuff. So I stay in the place of mystery, and I stay in the place of the interpreter 
very exclusively. So I'm working with someone like Craig Lucas, who I've worked with a lot. He gives me a great text, and they're filled with all kinds of mysteries, and we, we pursue them all. And then later on, it might be I'll have an idea after working on it for 10 weeks where I go, what if that didn't happen? But early on, I never can, I never can have that idea. I think I don't belong in that idea, in that place. And then do the normal thing, which is convince everybody every day when it keeps changing why this is the right one. But that's, you know, that happens. Is that how, so how much then of your role is, I don't know, cheerleader or pep rally leader or keeping, keeping sort of morale high? How, how much does that figure into I think, I think the job? I think it's not so much, I always get a little worried when people call us cheerleaders because it's not about that. <laughs> no, right. Um, yeah. but, but it's interesting what you said about the interpreter and the, and the creator. It's, you know, having just finished doing my own play and now working on a new play with Rajiv Joseph, this magnificent new writer, um, that, that all of a sudden I had to, to, to do exactly what you just said. It's my job at the beginning is to say, this is interesting, ask questions. And it's not cheerleading. You know, <clears throat> bringing something new into the world is such a difficult thing. So my job is not to cheerlead him on, but it's to create a space in which I can say, you know, obviously I chose to do this play. There was something in it that I found moving or exciting or beautiful or worthy of m myself coming in and working on it. And if I can feed that back to the writer, what was the thing that I loved about it? And what was the thing that, that kept me ex in excited and inspired and why I think it's a, it's a beautiful piece of work? Um, and, and exactly what you say, I hardly ever give editing notes. I first, it's, it's like two separate processes almost. Like first, you have to encourage creation and encourage uh, the author going deeper and deeper and deeper into what he or she wants to do. And that is a very important job. I would suggest that that job is even more important than the editing that happens later. It's really saying, go on, go on. Oh, this is interesting, keep going. I don't know where this is leading you. And my job during that time is to, to take what he gives me or she gives me and stage it as beautifully as I can. And then I, I do my best putting it on and then I look at him and I say, is that it? You know, and then <clears throat> and really empowering them to get up on their feet and say, "No, try it this way." And as soon as you, you know, at the beginning, they're always like, "You want me to talk to the actors?" And like, "Yes, get up and tell them, you know, what you want." And and in, invariably, they feel empowered about, and they continue to explore. And then, yes, later on, you know, you get to say, "Well, what about this? Or is this clear? Or is this?" What about if you took this away? But by that point, the only way to get to that point is if you have really spent the time profoundly trying to understand what the original impulse of the writer is. Because otherwise then you're editing, you know, especially for somebody like me who writes and directs, it's very dangerous. Because, you know, I, I will have other dramaturgical ideas that are how I would write it, as opposed to how that person wants to write it. Right, well I think, I mean, this is the thing, like it really depends on what the needs of the writer yeah. are. And I think how, how that relationship forms and when it's working the best, I think, the 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 most material, the most creative, deep material, you know, is mind in in the 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 most extraordinary way, and I think it's um, it's it's hard to describe because I think when it's working best, those things are happening simultaneously. I mean, a very interesting example is you what you just did with Ruined, because you were really there at the very creation of it, right? Yeah, but that was that was slightly different because originally we were going to do Mother Courage, and Lynn just sort of. <laughs> I mean, she said, do you want to do Brecht? And I said, sure. And she said, do you want to do Mother Courage? I said, let's do it. She wanted to set it in the Congo. And so we traveled. But, the, um, but you know, once we got there, it felt like if we were to 
be truthful to the Brecht, we wouldn't be doing the story of these women. So then we decided, okay, let's pull away from Brecht completely and actually just create this story. So we were there at the beginning, absolutely, but it was one of those things that started as a classic text and then shifted to be a new play. And I agree with both Bart and Moises that particularly with Lynn, because she's such a smart writer, it really is to listen. It's really to really figure out what's going on before you make any move. And, and the only thing I would do is ask questions if I didn't understand something. It's like, well, what is that or what, you, what are you trying to get at? And then try to bring it out further, but not in the writing and the directing. You know, so that it was like, okay, how do, we, how do we articulate that with what I have, with the text that I have? And then I, I would also say, just in terms of adjustments and text changes, and you had sort of an adverse relationship to the word cheerleading. To me, it's actually about coming truthfully to the table with actors, because I, I think in this country there's a kind of um, uh, babying of the actor, which I think is the worst way of working. And I feel like the most important way is to say to them, okay, this is the play. We've all been working on it for four weeks. We realized that when we do this, the audience isn't with us. We're going to make this change here. They'll be on board if it's a good idea, in my view. Like, I've never had an idea where, like, I know this will work, and them not be on board. It's the idea where I'm like, I don't really know. You want to try it? You know, that's, and, and even that, I feel like it's honesty. It's like, listen, we have no idea what point B is supposed to be. We have to get to C. We know A, and B's a mess. That kind of honesty, I think, allows them to feel safe in the room. I think when you go in and say, we're going to make these decisions and you're just going to do them, I think that's when they start to balk. Yeah, I don't trust a happy process. <laughs> um, I think it's a passionate, difficult, incredibly demanding, overwhelming, intense business. And, and I don't think that you're, I think there's a deep amount of trust to be able to have really big conversations and be truthful and keep, and you, the actor has to trust that they can go through a lot of stuff. And, you know, I think it's always a really good moment in rehearsal if somebody melts down and behaves badly. I think that can be good for the rehearsal. I don't think it has to be about keeping it all okay. And that's because they're in the middle of a very demanding and intense thing, and so they go through it. Uh, and same, not for the director. The director really can't be in that place. The director has to be able to help, but the director can't, um, not, uh, cannot let people live in an illusion that it's all great. Um, it has to be in a, you know, clearly evaluating and unfolding, and as it unfolds, the deeper logic emerges and you start to understand it. Mm. And that's harrowing for everybody. So. Did, did you want to add something? No, I, just, I love the idea, I mean, just what Moises said about the, the actor being a dramaturg, because I feel like somehow in this country we have, we have, have such a bastardized version of actor-director like yeah. you hear conversations like, what is this? Yeah. And I, I feel like what's nice is to, it's like those actors who have incredibly strong impulses and are the expert of the inside world and will tell you yeah. this is what's going on and it's wrong. What you're asking me to do is wrong. Yeah. And not for um, the moment of being selfish, but for the moment of their story and the truth of, yeah. of the person they're portraying. Anyway. One of the things that keeps on coming up that it's, it's so nice to hear um, is just this idea of basically this pursuit of the truth, you know, and how you get there and what you're trying to find ultimately. And, you know, I've certainly, um, you know, 
read about the show that I loved and you know and you're shocked at how it came about or you hear that story about it and and I feel like I must be much lamer than those people because it doesn't seem like any of those really interesting exciting things happen when I work on things you know and, and in, in a show like Heights which where Lynn Lynn had written this version of the show, sort of this proto version that he wrote in college. So when I met Lynn, he already had this one-year-old baby. It's not like, hey, I have an idea, but he sort of it was like, well, let's start to raise it. And we realized that we needed a lot of other people to help raise this. And we had this very unique experience because Kiara Hudes, who then came on to write the book, because Lynn was writing uh, book music and lyrics for the first two years we were working on it. Kiara had this fully formed 120-page script where we'd already thrown out 25 songs. And then it's like, oh, right, we have to make this all of ours. And so it was a very particular kind of job for me, which was to, to incorporate that and incorporate this new parentage to it. Um, you know, and, and then you start talking about it being new work and the fact that you know, you're a music director and you're a arranger and orchestrator and you're a choreographer who all have to be part of that process in a very profound way. Um, you know, it's about having a room that is whatever it needs to be, whether it's safety or, you know, that's fueled by passion and all those other things, which doesn't mean that we don't disagree in the way we do with our, with our families and people we love the most, where someone can come in and say, I don't know what this is, but I'm going to put it on the table. And I, I do find that if, if someone's brave enough to come in and do that, then I certainly have to be the person to say, well, keep going, you know, and, and keep on running. You know, and again, a lot of that has to do with the given circumstances of time and, and all those other, well, it's basically just time, let's be honest, um, you know, that, that sometimes creates a different kind of pressure. But, um, you know, it's, uh, it's so incredibly brave what everybody on stage is doing. And, and when this idea of ownership that you were talking about is something that I, you know, I, I agree with in such, a, in such a full way. Because when you give, I mean, we want to take care of the things that are ours. And um, I certainly do. And, and I know that as a director, in a way, all of it is and none of it is. Because I'm not there without the writer. I'm not there without the people to help me make it. And so you know, our job is to be able to walk in and out of these rooms um, rather silently at the end of the day. You know, there's nothing stranger than an opening night you know, event where it's like, the people that know, know. And then, but our job is to sort of then figure out what, what our life is beyond that, whatever the life of the show is. And, and that's certainly something um, that is, is a discovery every time, I think, depending on the show. What's it like then approaching a classic text or you know, uh, something that exists already and that does not change? Um, what do you bring? How do you look at that? Bart. Bart. <laughs> I drank water right during that question. <laughs> um, you know, it's fun. Um, I mean, I sort of said it a little bit. You know, the fact is that it doesn't. Uh, you can shape them. You can shape a Shakespeare. You can shape. Obviously, you bring things to it. But um, you know, you have tools at your command, and you have. The fun part of it is that it's filled with mysteries that you can't change, and it's 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 usually overlaid by some kind of time, some sense of time that's different than yours, and a whole different series of circumstances around which the writing. The original writing took place, or an entire group of collaborators around whom the original writing took place, and so you go on this little time capsule into sort of getting into the core of it, and it's like a, it's like a substructure game, you know, like when you do enough things with it that that real the the sort of basic structure begins to emerge, you know, like not the table but the grain of the table or however you want to think about it, and that's the fun part about classics. Each of them have their own set of rules, which I think is sort of 
the only overall thing I think about theater is it's like it's all about autonomous works of art. Inside each one has its own set of rules, and you're always instead of like bringing something to it, you're sort of discovering what that set of rules are. Whether it's ruined, starting here and going there and becoming this, or your piece. And a classic has that too. It just follows a different set of uh, its own set of autonomous logic, and you sort of uncover it. And people uncover them differently, and they're affected by time, their original time, the time they're done, the time they're in. All kinds of things affect them, like big site-specific, crazy installations that you do at that time. And you know, it's it's a fun process. It's but different than original work. But it also feels like, to me, the most interesting thing about doing a classic is the clash between what was important then and relevant then and what's important now. And that, that dialogue, I think, is the most interesting. And, and to edit and cut when you need to. And the but, skills required to do what it was then and the skills required to do it now are all mm-hmm. often at work. And, and you learn a lot about all kinds of things while trying to either replicate or get inside of that while you're, you know, and so... You learn a lot, and it's very good when you go to do something original because it builds a lot of muscle. You get like it's like working out. You build a lot of muscle for what you bring to mm-hmm. to a new work. It's also easier to do new work because you can turn to the writer and say, "What does this mean?" <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. you get an answer. It's like a cheat I the, sheet. I have the opposite opinion. Oh, really? I was just yeah, going to say, I, I feel so much like easier. The opposite. Yeah, no, because oh, I, I think you're you're in this unknown place when you're doing new work where it can go around any corner. Whereas, you know, Kingler's Kingler, it's good. And you're not. Yeah, but you will not, no one will be able to answer, what does this mean? If you have a line question, you're like, what does that line mean? Yeah. I like asking that question a lot, though, so yeah. I don't know. But isn't it like, I guess, I always felt like it was sort of, when you're groping around in the dark, no matter what, but when you know what the end point is, you're sort of groping around in the dark with an end point, as opposed to not knowing what the end point might be on yeah. a new point. Right. I that's guess that was right. just the that's way that's that what I, I That's the part that's of it. I, I, that's the part I agree with you about. You don't know, and it can go around any corner, and the writer has mysteries inside of them that are not present when you're dealing with a, a nice dead text. Yeah, like you at least know sort of where you're going <laughs> to... Yeah. I don't mean it that way, I'm just saying. Yeah. For fun. There's also something, you know, this idea of what, what we're talking about, it's not necessarily that it's classic or not. We're just talking about something that existed before. And I think there's, a, there's this idea that exists that to be relevant, you have to be contemporary. And I think that South Pacific is a pretty wonderful example of if, if you find a way to tell the story in the moment, understand the world that it came from, yeah. then all of a sudden it's relevant. So I think that, you know, this, this idea of, of exploring and discovering all of these things. I mean, the fact that they might have endured has made them classic. But there's also, whether you're dusting off something that no one has done since 1928, there's still that excitement. It's like being an investigator. And I yeah. think you know, that's, you know, that's part of this job that we don't get to talk about a lot. That's a lot of the joy. Yeah, it's just a diff- different muscle. And the, the, the people working on new text, whether you're working on new text, takes a very special intuition to support and guide the writer, which is different than when the text is already written and you're just digging it out. They're just different yeah. things and bring out different impulses. I'm sorry. No, there are two things about working on a classic text that, that I particularly love. One is that the archaeological part of it, right? That you're doing an archaeological dig and you're finding all of these incredibly beautiful pieces. And by the end, what ends up being on the stage is not only the pieces that you found, but every, everywhere where the shovel went in. You know, every, every place where you dug is, will find its way onto the thing. But the other thing that, that is a real true joy is that whether it's Shakespeare or whether it's Beckett or whether it's, you are sharing the room with some incredible minds. 
Yeah. And, and you spending weeks talking to these incredible minds. And they're, and you know, and I, and I profoundly believe that the text carries so much more than just the words and the ideas. It, is, it carries something about the spirit of the people who made it. And you get to really share with that. And one of the highs of doing classical work is that <laughs> every so often you're in rehearsal and you say, he thought that? <laughs> or, or look at this idea, or look at the way this idea shifts into this idea, or if you go here, and, and those journeys are incredibly delicious because you get to, you really, it's like, and it is not that different from like working in a new play where you have somebody sitting next to you, then the person is still sitting next to you, it's just they're not alive. You know, you do have a sense that, oh, Beckett had this brilliant thought at this moment and how did he transform it into this theatrical bit? And so that, that, is, a, that is a real, you know, a real job. The, the, the thing that it does that is not as good is that when you're working on a new play that is not as good, and you, you start working and all of a sudden you hit, a, a, you hit something and there's nothing underneath mm. and, you're la and you become very quick at, at knowing, oops, there is no there there. That, that's as far as he's going to get um, in terms of the text. So, you know, it's, 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 it's sometimes when you, when you work on a classic and then you come to a new play or, or a contemporary play that, 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 that at first you're excited, <laughs> very quickly your muscles will tell you, well, this is, you can only go this far here. Mm -hmm. I'm having this strange experience right now because we're doing, I'm doing this adaptation of this book, of this Neil Gaiman book called Coraline. And um, it, so all day, you know, we're just constantly referencing the book, which is um, something that I've never experienced, um, which has been sort of interesting for me because it's sort of like, well, what does happen in that cellar? And, you know, we read it out loud and I'm going back constantly. And I think it's that also is really different for me because I've never had like a, I don't, I've never done an adaptation in that hmm. way before. Um, so it's been sort of, fun to have um, another, um, I don't know, source to yeah. say, um, oh, okay, this is the feeling in the book, and we're trying so hard to um, hold on to this quirky, strange, totally amazing story of this nine-year-old and to bring it to life. And so I feel like I'm constantly trying to reference the feeling that you get from reading the book mm -hmm. and figure out how to make that theatrical. And that's so that's sort of new. I mean, it's just a whole new thing. And how do you, excuse me, how do you, I mean, that idea, because a novel and reading a novel is such an intensely personal experience. Yeah. So in your, you know, in your job to, to bring it to hopefully, you know, quite a few people, you know, what's, what's that struggle like? I think the experience of reading that book, of holding those pages in your hand and knowing it's not over, you're like, you know it's not over because you feel the weight. You know, and as opposed to in the theater, it feels like, oh, good, I'm home, and everyone's like, great, I'm going to get my coat. You know, it it has a very different feeling. So it's been um, that's been just one of kind of the struggles that we've had to sort of figure out how to, I don't know, make make yeah. it happen. Well, that's such a particular feeling too. You know, reading when you read a book, and you know, like maybe you should slow down a little bit because you only have this much left. You know, I mean, there's something right. that you're talking about yeah. in the theater. You know, she's, it's lights to black, house lights up, and then they start again. You know, it's, it's a very different kind of thing to do, but that's, that's a, I don't know, that's a pretty wonderful thing to, to actually have to consider, which I probably never thought of, thanks to you. It's just like yeah. that moment, you know, like, you still gotta go somewhere. There's yeah. still a there's still, uh, road left to drive. Yeah. We've talked quite a bit about working with text. Uh, now let's talk a little bit about actors and sort of assembling your cast. How do you work, for instance, with a casting director and 
putting together the group of people who will become your actors? It depends. I mean, generally, um, depending on what the development of the play has been, there will occasionally be person X or person Y who have been there since the beginning um, that might have inspired the writer or might be a voice that the writer has been working with and towards. And I find that I've been very fortunate to work with uh, casting directors who listen and trust the creative element. So when you say, hey, here are some people we'd like to bring to the table, and hopefully you'll get a chance to try that out in a way that's safe and it's not like you're opening the next night, um, that then it becomes about finding the right alchemy because you know the people that have been with the show. With Heights, there are people, we started working on it in 2002, and there are people that I met one month after first reading it that have been with the show for six and a half years in some form, and three of them are in the Broadway company. And so this is such a part of their life, and they were such a part of this experience that, our, uh, you know, that we knew that there was something they brought that we wanted to, again, we talk about that impulse. They were there, and they helped create that initial impulse. And then you have to find new people to continue that and to further it and to deepen it. So I think it's about having as much communication and, and knowing also that you're the one who has to go into the room and, and, and make this thing. You have to go and, and get that. So you know, the audition process is such a, a strange one um, that you know, I, you certainly, I, I try to create the most comfortable room I can and try to not have it, um, you know, try to feel like we're having a conversation because they should be looking at us and saying, okay, I want to work with him or I want to work with her just as much, but that's, that doesn't seem to exist as much here. So you have to try to work, I think, against that a little bit. Casting's hot. I mean, casting's a very big creative part of our job, and uh, uh, a lot of it's diagnostic. You know, like I don't think, I don't really think actors can come in and have the role right. You know, and like they, you might capture an essence of what's in the character, but a lot of it's really working with them enough to determine their sort of their skills, their intelligence, the way they interact with the thing. If they have previous experience on it, you know, and something like Joe Turner, there's a lot of really wonderful actors who have, in my production, have great, like Roger Robinson, has great experience with Joe Turner, and I need him in the show to teach me as we go along. And then there are other newer people coming in where you have to determine that they have. In, for that piece, really great language skills, um, you know, all kinds of qualities that go into it. And so it's, it's about the three quarters of the job is really casting it right, because if you don't get it right, you can really, it's going to have a big impact. And they, I agree with Kate, they are, and Moises, they are like our major collaborators. And when you work with actors in the rehearsal room, is working with each actor different? Is, like, is each actor a sort of different person in terms of how they work as actors and how you work with them? I think so. I mean, my, my, I mean even in the Joe Turner example, yeah. though I shouldn't speak, I, you should speak. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like how you worked with your, no, no, yeah. but it feels like if one person has a lot of experience with Wilson, it's a different relationship with than a younger actor that you're, you're bringing to the stage in a different, it's just a very different, Yeah, and everybody has totally different. different working processes. Like, you know, you get, you get, you know, sort of what I call like the English method, which is very technical and extremely fluid with language and very intellectual. And then you'll get a sort of Stella Adler, you know, Strasbourg, more sort of interior exploration. And you may have seven different approaches to acting in the same thing and you just have to figure out how to be able to talk and not usually my process has to dominate that like what i what questions i'm asking in the scene dominate it and pull it together but everybody is working at different rhythms and different and you know some guys mumbling you know for three weeks and you think oh my god i'm gonna kill myself and then the thing explodes out of them because they've been doing this weird interior work that you don't understand but you just have to be patient somebody else is like two days in, they're done, 
and you can't get it to change, <laughs> even when you want it to. And so there's a whole series of juggling acts going on about like how to hold them all, make them all feel like they're in the same universe. But I would ask you why you have a company. <laughs> really, how many hours do you have? <laughs> um, I'll answer that, but I think that, that one of the things that, that you both are saying, which is really interesting, number one, in the, I had never heard that said before, but it's true. When you're casting, it, it, it's a very mysterious process because you're looking for the actor who you think has the chops to do it, but you're not going to see it in the audition. So it's like divination. I've become completely obsessed with the Harry Potter books. Yeah. I was like, you must be <laughs> So right. yeah, so like, like the divination. It's right. like, you, you are, you're there, to, and, but the other thing that you find out when you're casting is if I work enough with the actor in the audition to make sure that we understand each other, that I can say something and she or he will understand, and vice versa. Because there's nothing worse than working with an actor that you're just, you know, and it happens, that, that you just have different languages and that you cannot understand each other. But, um, but once you're in the rehearsal room, it's exactly that. It's like some actor, you have to say, well, cross three feet there, turn over here, look at her, and say your line, and they love that. And other actors are like, well, I think that, you know, you really have to understand the three scenes before what had happened so that you can, and then they go away, and they mumble for three days, and then they come back, and you keep your fingers crossed that, that it's going to be there. So it's, it's, it's a real, and, and, and the biggest part of that job is that at the end of the day, you have to come up with a common acting vocabulary. Because there's nothing yeah. worse than going to a play and seeing somebody doing Shakespeare like Laurence Olivia and somebody doing Shakespeare like, you know, somebody else. And that, you know, but that's also part of the casting process. Why do I have a company? You have to remember that Tectonic is not a repertory theater company. So it's not the same actors working on all the pieces together. It's much more of a, as a community of artists who are posing the same questions about theater. And so Michael Emerson was in Grossing Decency, then he couldn't do the play of Laramie Project. He was in the movie of Laramie Project. Now he's become a superstar because of Lost. You know, hopefully we'll get him back to do another play. So it's about we get together as often as we can, and we come up with ideas, and we come up with projects, and we cast according to who's possible. But what that has given me is the possibility to create a group of people around whom I can create new work. And that's very exciting. OK. Hmm. Can directing be taught? <laughs> Well, it has to be learned. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't come out of nowhere. So uh, whether one person can teach only one other person what directing is, is improbable. But I don't think anybody here could say they, 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 you might have a talent for it and an intuition for it. And there may be a lot of influences that pull you toward it. But you have to learn it. And where and how that happens, whether it's through a mentor, whether it's through a particular teacher, whether it's through a, you know, there's a lot of ways to that, but I don't, I don't know, I've, I've found very, I've run into very few people who like came out directing and like had, were great at it. Maybe one I ever could ever talk about. And so. Who is that? Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I always thought that was Peter Sellers. Because <laughs> I saw him at 25 do something that was like so unbelievable and so off the charts that it was like incredible. He's this great American director. But he'd, he'd, he'd been directing since he was 12. Yeah, and that might have been did, you Didn't he do like a that, play a month at Harvard? Yes, and it's he started like seeing was You're only proving to me that I'm wrong. <laughs> 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 I know, because he was curious. I was wondering I, 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 Not that he's yeah. not a genius, but he, yeah, he didn't but come up. He, his, his, the work I saw for a 24-year-old was so unbelievably uh -huh. great that it was kind of like off the charts to me well, in okay. terms of how quickly he'd learned or however he'd learned. And so I had a friend uh, who said, I, I, need a, I need an outside eye. I'm, I'm directing something for the student production. And Wesleyan has this wonderful 
you know, group that basically says, here's $50, here's four lights, you're in the basement of the gym from April 1st to April 3rd. We don't care what you do. And so you have to learn how to produce, you have to learn how to do, you have to learn how to make. And I think that what you're talking about also, you know, hearing about Peter Sellers, because when I, when I came out of college, I thought, all right, there's a lot I need to know. So I, was, I just wanted to go and find a theater. And I was in ASM for, for 18 months. And that was basically where I learned how to do all the things that I'd never, uh, I'd never knew. I mean, from driving a 15-passenger van to sweeping a stage to running a spotlight, those are things I didn't have you know, in my toolbox. And so the thing that's also tricky, and I, I guess we've all you know, probably could speak to it, is I didn't, know how to, I didn't know how to learn unless I was doing it. So I had a couple friends from school, and in the basement of the drama bookshop, they had this little white room in 2001, and it was 16 by 35 by 11. You could turn the lights on, and there were six inches of dust, and this guy said, um, he was running the bookshop, he said, I want to have a theater company here. Can you make this into a theater? And we said, if you buy some black paint, we can start. And he literally gave us a desk and a phone and a computer and said, I just want you to do something as much as you can. And so for three years, every week, we thought we had to do something or he was going to kick us out, basically. And so at least we had a chance to throw it up against the wall. And that's what I think is so hard coming out is how do you get, how do you develop? How do you, how do you see it with an audience? How do you interact with those things? And that's, that's I think, what part of the struggle of being a director is. It's safe to say that you can teach craft. You can teach craft. You know, what happens between craftsmanship and artistry, that's always that, that gap that, you know, nobody has ever learned how to fill. You know, there are some better teachers who inspire and ha aid you in that final journey, but, you know, I don't know, I don't know that that can be taught. I mean, I've been blessed. I've, I've had great, great teachers who, you know, I had this one teacher that when I finished working with him, I thought, you know, what he was teaching me was not how to direct, but how to be an artist. And that was incredible. That doesn't mean that he taught me how to be an artist, but he taught me what questions to ask to continue doing that. And so what was the path? How did the, for the rest of you, how did you find directing, or how did directing find you? I was in high school. I was, for whatever reason, very interested in Vietnam veterans. I think because, I will not say my age, but there's the, the um, there was a gap between what we were taught from our parents and who we were, and there was something about this war that intrigued me. And so I went, I, I don't know what I was doing, but I, I was interested in talking to Vietnam vets, so I went to the VA hospital and talked to a bunch of vets and said I want to make a theater piece. And so anyway, I had sort of a hippie teacher, and he was like, well, we'll do this. We'll have the VA guys and we'll have some students and we'll make a piece of theater about the Vietnam War. <laughs> anyway, that it was probably a terrible piece of theater, honestly. I'm sure it was probably a ridiculous and bad piece of theater. I, I had directed it. But the what was amazing to me afterwards is there's conversation that happened that I thought this theater piece is the only thing that would have brought this conversation together. And um, it was between, um, I remember uh, a friend of mine's parents are real hippies, and then this guy who is in the Vietnam War, had been in the hospital since then, had never seen a piece of theater or film about the Vietnam War because he was scared what it would bring up. And they had this discussion where they were just in tears with each other about something that happened historically. So then, I guess for me it was this interest about a, a cultural divide and then having this theater piece that could actually bring a connection together that I thought was fascinating. And then from there I trained and blah, blah. But that was when I was 16. I But I was lucky enough to see Kate's work when she was first working at ART. As a student who worked up to that, 
because she did a production with my w wife was in it of Master Builder, and it was incredibly extraordinary. And uh, for a young person, you're always, I mean, and as a director, you're always excited, incredibly excited to see another great director because we really desperately need each other in that way. We're very competitive people by nature, I believe. But, um, but really, truly, all directors I know are never happier than when they see a great piece of work. Yeah, and, um, and really like thrilled and overwhelmed and, and lifted up by it. And I remember seeing Kate's and she was, you know, 27. Very, you know, young. I mean, maybe as young as Peter Sellers when I remember seeing his. <laughs> but um, but it was an incredibly, it was an incredibly great piece of work, and you could tell there was a sort of sensibility in there forming. Now, what what makes that happen is very hard to know, in terms of what's inside a person to assemble all those sort of unique voices and skills. It's complicated, but can any of you give advice to? Or do you give advice to aspiring directors? And what is well, it? <laughs> you have to see a lot of stuff. You have to see everything all over the world and all kinds of dance and all kinds of things and really learn about art and look at how people express themselves. You have to do a lot, obviously. Um, it's always really helpful to find somebody who's a model for you, even if you end up rejecting everything about them, somebody who inspires you greatly, whether it's in film or in whatever else. And the last one's a little bit off the wall, but it's, you know, stay out of debt. Yeah. is always a big one because debt is the one thing that can prevent you from having the freedom to stay in that place of being an artist as long as possible without having to kind of go to the other side and rampant capitalism that we live in makes that extremely difficult because of all the other pressures about living so if you can kind of, that's always my sort of short version of that but oh that's fantastic i've never heard it that clearly i would add just one thing get a masters in fear Learn how to deal with fear. Mm -hmm. That's it, because it's, because it's going to be prevalent in the entire creative process, no matter what you do. And the more you can you know, learn how, how it works for you. And you know, I had a great friend who once said to me, for me, fear is great, because fear is fuel. Yeah. So this person had managed to find how fear was transformed into fuel, and all of a sudden, that was such a great thing. It's funny, I said that, and you can see everybody go. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Yeah. The other thing is about see, seeing each other and about seeing yeah. how the directors work. That's so incredibly important because that's where the conversation takes place. I always say that, I was, I was telling Tommy earlier today that, that, that being a theater director is like having sex. Is you don't know how any of your friends do it. You know? So it's the true. only way that you, that you find out is by going to see their work and by talking to each other. Yeah. But I also wish we had it more... Um, <laughs> Just both, both for education and, and for my own education, I wish we were more combative with each other. Because I, I feel like there's so many ideas, and we, I, I feel like it's like, I'll go to see something, and then I'll have all these private thoughts. But it feels like, wouldn't it be great if we could actually trust each other enough to actually fight a bit mm -hmm. and, and yeah. challenge each other's uh, work a bit more? It's always been my thing about that. I always find the English to be incredibly collegial, and they always seem like they're like they all know each other and they're all whatever. <laughs> and I always find that in Americans, we're also we're sort of trapped by a lot of things. That for me, the next great step would be creating a greater level of collegiality, where there were like opportunities to always be there in some way for each other. Because I think that's what creates the next generation of artists is to feel that sense of support. Because you do feel it in the, English, in the English system. They really do kind of in their own way. They're tough on each other, but they look out for each other. But we're all in completely separate pods where we kind of all, and because it's a very competitive and difficult field with no clear path to it, you find that 
it's harder to feel that level of um, support for each other. But I know I've known Kate a long time, and I'm meeting Lee, and we know each other. And you know, the, the idea that we could actually be in a room talking more is really, I think, the next great place we all need to go, if possible. Do you ever use each other as resources in, in terms of, I don't know, hey, I need an actor. Do you know anyone or something we to that have. effect? Or? Mm -hmm. We have. We have. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it just depends. I mean, you're. And we have. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you've given me notes. In yeah, a good way. Yeah. In a good way. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> Not like a. I mean, there does. It, there is something. I mean, very. You know, the the union will have an event X amount of you know times a year, and and there is something about being in a room with that many people who have a shared collective knowledge and experience that I find exhilarating and inspiring, and yet I don't know what to do with that afterwards. Like I feel like, okay, you know, there's someone who has created work and, and done something or made a life in this, in this world that, that, I'm, you know, that, that I'm so honored to be a part of. How do you communicate with them and find a way beyond you know, seeing them once every however much, or, or after a show when it's, you know, when you frankly, you're, there's so much, if it's your own show, you have so many people coming at you and telling you what they think that you want to try to find those times. Or, you know, and, and I guess I, w I was saying this, you know, earlier that, you know, when, when, um, you, when I heard and, and read about the design process for Coast of Utopia and these designers who finally got to work with each other, you know, three lighting designers, you know, three set designers. There was this joy, and it was a collective joy. It was that joy of making something multiplied by, by something. And I thought, even in reading about it or seeing them talk about it, I, I thought I was jealous of that. I wanted that. And, um, you know, and I certainly don't know what the, what the answer to that is, but I, you know, even getting a chance to sit down for an hour and, and listening and, and absorbing, which is so much of what we do, I mean, because we're learning from wherever we go, hopefully, you know, there's, there's something really, you know, impactful that I, that I hope we can try to, you know, actually put into effect at some point where that can exist. And where there's a great young generation of American, there's a great generation of young American directors coming up who are really making some great work, whether it's in the Heights or whether it's Coraline or Ruined, and many, many, many others. And that's where I think that level of looking out for each other and feeling try to create an atmosphere where you actually keep moving ahead and keep questioning and working with each other creates a movement of good directors as opposed to a competition, and that would be good. That would be for the art form. Thing. Yeah, for the yeah. art form, that would be a great thing. You yeah, know. I, it's interesting. You know, I, I feel like there's been a lot of anxiety around like, oh, theater, it's dying. It's, it's money and this and that. I feel like there's been more great theater in the last couple of years. Like I think all over, yeah. that's been really exciting. Like I think it's been an exciting season on Broadway. I think it's been an exciting season off Broadway. I just think it's like I I think about the work that's happened in the last couple of years, and I feel like I don't know. It doesn't. I mean, I know the money thing is a problem, but it also feels like a really exciting time. I think. Yeah. 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 That idea of support, I um, had the chance to see Next to Normal finally a, a couple nights ago, and it just knocked me out. And I was sitting behind Joseph Stein, who is 96 years old, and he, he turned around, and he doesn't really know me, but he said, wasn't that fantastic? I mean, this is a guy who, you know, we talk about like the well-made musical. Like This is a man who has, has done some things and writ written and contributed so much. And for him to be there <coughs> taking that in and that, that sort of excitement that, you know, I, I bet you he went home and wrote. I mean, he had that feeling about it. He was inspired by the work. And I mean, to be able to watch it from literally right behind him um, was, was an amazing, amazing and experience. And Michael Greif's a wonderful, wonderful, one of our 
best, best, best directors, and he's Absolutely. guided an enormous number of projects um, onto Broadway and all over the place, and he's really, you know, he's a lot to learn from. Absolutely. He's a really great Absolutely. person. That's about a good time for us to wrap up. Thank you all for being here, and thank you for joining us. These programs are brought to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York in partnership with our friends at CUNY TV. On behalf of the American Theater Wing, I'm Gordon Cox, and thanks for joining us for another edition of Working in the Theater. I'm Ted Chapin, Chairman of the American Theater Wing. The Wing has played a vital role in New York's theatrical life for more than 60 years. Best known for creating the Tony Awards, we stand for excellence, but we also support education in the theater and our work reaches beyond Broadway in New York. The Working in the Theater television programs, which are supported by the Annenberg Foundation and the Dorothy Strelson Foundation, are unequaled forums for discussions with today's most creative artists. Downstage Center's in-depth radio interviews were created in conjunction with XM Satellite Radio and can be heard on our website. Our annual theater company grants support New York not-for-profits and since they began have distributed nearly $3 million. We are also pleased to be the home of the Jonathan Larson Grants, which support emerging composers and lyricists. For people who are starting their careers, we have a two-week boot camp for aspiring actors from colleges across the country called Springboard NYC. And our theater intern group provides a forum for young people who are starting their careers to build a professional network. All of the American Theater Wing's educational and media programs are available for free on demand from our website, americantheaterwing.org. Thanks for your interest in the Wing, and thanks for watching.